Welcome to another exciting episode of Practice What You Teach, a weekly teacher podcast. I'm your host, Mr. Hare, along with my other two hosts, Mr. Lumpkin Yo. and Mr. Moreland. Hello. We are back again to talk about Manassas Park High School and the weekly events. That being said, though, I want to issue a hearty congratulations to Mr. Lumpkin, Aww. who got married over the weekend in Prince William County Park. Had a blast. My wife and son, we went up there. We had some of the great hors d'oeuvres you guys had, which I loved. I had some of that honey. I put it in my tea. Oh, good. Which was delicious, by the way. Yeah. That Rhode Island honey was just amazing. And I do want to say congratulations. Thank you. I appreciate that so much. I'm just I'm just glad that people came out. <laughs> we were, my family was glad to be invited. Not only that, we got to hang out with the more with the, the Morelands again. Mm-hmm. That was a blast. I got to see uh, Mr. Moreland and Mrs. Moreland. She picked up my son, <clears throat> carried him all over the place. She played with him outside. It was a wonderful time. I, I had a blast. So thank you for having us. I'm really grateful. That being said, though, we're going to lay out the topics for today's show. We're going to uh, bring up a quick news story that each of us found this week. Uh, we're going to catch up from the past week. We're also going to talk about the poll results. Mr. Mullen, you've got those pulled up, right? Yes. And then we're going to have a uh, some club news recap. And we got some exciting news from the anime club. And then we're going to have a special guest interview with Mr. Budo. He came in, and we're going to have that for you on the back half of the show. So let's get right into it. Uh, any news stories for the week? Mr. Uh, Lumpkin, what you got for us? For an interesting news story? Yes, sir. I've got one that's going to knock your socks off because okay. I heard how much they love dinosaurs. They love the dinosaurs. <laughs> uh, as somebody who researched dinosaurs quite a bit, while well, we did paleontology for quite a bit, I'm always interested to see different things come into the news that I actually have to deal with dinos. And this particular week, they've done some more research or some new research has actually come out on reconstructions for Diplodocus. Oh, which wow. most people would know as like a long neck dinosaur or a sauropod. About 13 feet high on average, about 25 feet long on average. So a big boy. Thing is, dinosaurs being of reptile descent are of being in the reptile nice big category. It's kind of hard for a lot of them to have heat management, right? Us as mammals, we have sweat. We have well, so I've been the major one. We have a whole system dedicated to being uh, regulating our temperatures so that we can, you know, function. Absolutely. Um, there's been some debate back and forth on dinosaurs, whether they had to regulate their temperatures at a higher temperature or lower temperature. But as of the current research in the last eh, 10 years or so, we found out that no, the actual chemical interactions and all the biochemistry inside them is very similar to pretty much most other life. Unlike some of the avians, which actually operate like higher temperatures, uh, they actually had body temperatures that were around about the same as you would see in mammals, which is weird. It's wild. It's actually. wild because they had no way to get rid of that heat. If you look at snakes, if you look at alligators, or other large reptiles that we see today, their only way of thermoregulation is being in the sun or not being in the sun and then gathering that heat or releasing that heat. For something that's 25 feet long and 13 feet tall, that's not an option. Yeah, they're taller than most of the trees. Exactly. And they have to be for the eat and everything. But they're figuring out that there might have been some other ways for them to be able to regulate their heat. A lot of dinosaurs had hollow bones. Uh, and a lot of the ways that their blood vessels were actually interacting, a lot of the ways they were bringing in so much oxygen was due to the way that they would pull in with their actual uh, their lungs, right? So they had so many blood vessels that were around their sinuses that we're looking at, or at least what new research is showing, that Diplodocus and other large uh, sauropod dinosaurs had different strategies 
with the blood vessels in their respiratory system to release actual body heat through breathing, which is insane. That's not something we normally see in any other life that we well, at least any other uh, vertebrates that I know of. For an animal that size, though, that makes a lot of sense. You mm-hmm. know, we don't have any animals that size other than maybe some uh, aquatic mammals. Yeah. But other than that, I mean, every land animal is not going to be 13. I don't know of any 13 feet tall, 25 foot long animals. No, not, not so many land at this point. To breathe in and out, and that's what does the uh, cooling. That's Especially so much oxygen they'd have to be pulling in anyway to be yeah. able to actually survive at that point. So it makes sense. The problem is with looking at dinosaurs, we don't see soft tissues. Correct. So a lot of the figuring outs for uh, blood vessels, for skin, for a lot of these minor details that have been gone, forever millions of years uh they're just starting to kind of figure out now through like dedicated x-rays and other types of imaging software that would go through the actual bone structure that's on the outside to figure out how some of these things actually work and i thought that was really interesting that's a great story mr Lincoln. i really like that a lot uh, i'm gonna have to keep an eye on that see where this research is going mr moreland i know you had one interesting story you had pulled up in the notes what, what you got what's going on <clears throat> so after 50 years of conservation the Kirtland's warbler has been reclassified and it's now off the endangered species. That's awesome. List. Mm-hmm. Good job. So, Woo. you know, it's, it's a bird. It's just a, you know, little yellow and, and gray bird. It's, it's, a picture it's actually a very attractive bird. Yes. Uh, and it just kind of goes to show how even though, you know, sometimes animals get endangered, that sometimes you can have a, a feel good story when they come back you know it's nice to see a success story and endangered animal uh actions like because we see a lot of people or at least from me as someone who was in environmental studies for a while there's a lot of talk about different ways to bring back animal populations or to be able to support animal populations and a lot of what people end up hearing or even not hearing is a lot of the negative because it ends up being either it's a whole lot of money spent to maintain very low populations the worse are worse. It definitely are worse. Yeah, but I'm kind of a, I'm kind of mixed in terms of my opinion on on stories about endangered. No, species. then that's fair. Sometimes there's, animals, you know, become extinct for a reason. You know, like there's no woolly mammoths anymore, and that's true. They could have brought the one back. Humans they, did that found too, the, though, which is a problem. <laughs> well, I mean, I, that's debatable, but I mean, they could have brought the woolly mammoth back, that's and they true. found that one encased in ice, but they didn't. And why didn't they do it? Because there's no habitat. We don't need woolly mammoths anymore. <laughs> and the, hmm. the famous uh, what's that other bird that that the dodo the dodo bird dodo yes. carrier pigeons dodo bird is you know in terms of history is relatively you know recently ex- extinct. Mm-hmm. But do we really need the dodo bird? Does it serve a purpose? I and if know. it did, are we less better off as a planet without it? These are fair arguments, and then it's, it's been discussions that have gone back and forth for both environmentalists and biologists. I, on the other hand, would love to see a giant land sloth back. A, a sloth that's about the size of like 10 feet tall and crawls on its all four legs would be fabulous. But they are, they are extinct. But if you could bring the dodo back, would you? I don't know. It could taste good. And you know what? That's what somebody said. I actually agree with that concept because somebody said, if you want an animal to not be extinct, eat it. Yes, that's because very true. We will never see cows extinct. We will never see chickens extinct because people eat them. They're, they're a source of food for people. So because of that, because they serve a purpose, they will never be 
an extinct cow or chicken, as far as we can tell. But it does give them a better advantage, the fact that we actually eat them. I think it's a fair point. I don't know if the dodo bird uh, should come back or not. However, it could be delicious. <laughs> we'll never know. I brought up one particle, uh, excuse me, one uh, article. Uh, it is, uh, once again, a quantum information article. It's called Ultrafast Particle Interactions Could Make Quantum Information Devices Feasible. Right now, what we have with quantum computers, it's a uh, an act called decoherence. So a coherent system is one that is working as appropriate, where the qubits are in place and the information is going where it's supposed to go. Uh, when decoherence happens, that means the qubits become unstable and then the, the whole apparatus, the entire quantum computer becomes unstable. So now at this point, we've come up with a system or we've done research on it where we can increase the coherence time. So the longer amount of time we can have a quantum computer to be viable. And they actually have this with quantum lattices. So what they have is basically a crystal. They excite that crystal with uh, some photons that vibrates at a certain frequency, which emits a specific color of light. And then from that, we can use that information to run a quantum computer. Now, this is very exciting for me. Like I've said, I'm waiting for quantum computing to get to everybody. But at this time, we're actually getting one step closer. So we're able to have a quantum computer and coherence last at around the scale of a femtosecond, which is 10 to the negative 15. So imagine the number one with 14 zeros in front of it and a dot. That's how short of a time frame we're talking. It's a very, very short amount of time. So we're able to get around 200 of these femtoseconds going, and that's a lot of time for one of these systems. So the longer we get these systems to run, the more calculations can be completed, the more we can get to a viable quantum computer. I'm actually very excited about this. Mm -hmm. So with all that being said, let's jump right into uh, the weekly news. Uh, we've got a lot to really talk about. There is a football game this week. It is an away game, and it is going to be against Armstrong. So let's get out there and support our guys. We want to make sure that they do well. There are also other events this week. We have volleyball, golf, and cross country. I believe that those are all home games. I am going to pull that up very quickly so that I can tell you exactly when they're going to be. Looks like we have a home game, which is going to be for varsity. That was on the 15th, and then we've got Coming up today, we have an away game at William Monroe for varsity and JV volleyball. And then for football, like I said, we have an away game that is against Armstrong. So now that we've talked about all of that, any news from this week? What did you guys learn about in uh, your class today, Mr. Dalton? And today we're getting back into rocks, which, of course, everyone's so excited about. <clears throat> I love rocks. I love rocks, too. And I feel like there's so many exciting things that actually come into play when you're talking about how the actual surface of the planet's been constructed and stuff. However, I know some people might not agree with that. But that's okay. We can have different interests. Um, but we are getting back in the rocks. We're talking about igneous rocks, metamorphic rocks, cemetery rocks how they interplay in the whole cycle between them. Uh, we actually had a great lab today with trying to get people actually seeing that process for how things break and form back together. Uh, but otherwise, we're chugging along through. Can you believe the quarter's almost over? Uh, no, no, I can't. Time certainly flies when you're having fun. Oh. Mr. Moreland, what are you guys working on over there in uh, your classes? Well, the students are currently in my 10th grade class reading their independent novels. Each student chose a novel from the list of 101 books to read before college. And uh, they have begun reading them independently and taking notes on them. The goal is that they will present their novels to their classmates at the end of the unit. So that way they only have about 70 novels to read out of the 101. That's pretty good, actually. Yes. And uh, we were also looking at excerpts from novels the students didn't choose. So we get kind of like, you know, an idea of some of the ones that, that weren't chosen. 
And uh, for this week, we just read an essay written by Sherman Alexie about the importance of reading to kind of like, you know, ease them into the, the idea of why they're doing it. And also because we only had the three day week this week. But fun fact, I just looked up actually dodo birds were eaten. They were by sailors and travelers. And it said some early travelers found dodo meat unsavory and preferred to eat parrots and pigeons. Others described it as tough, but good. And they said that the gizzards were considered the most delicious part of the bird. The gizzards being the in, intestines, the guts. Of, of the course. Yeah. Like uh, chicken so gizzards all the time. Apparently mm -hmm. it was better than nothing, but the dodo bird was not necessarily a delicious bird. So maybe that puts a rigid in your yeah. idea that if you want to save it, eat it. Well, if it's if it tastes good, I if guess. It tastes good. Yeah. But then again, I guess there are people who, eat, who are eating lizards now. I've seen that, and there's also people who get protein from, say, uh, cockroaches and, and other insects. I will say, grasshoppers are delicious when cooked right. I have not had a cockroach yet, and mealworms are disgusting, but cockroach, uh, uh, grasshoppers or crickets, very good. I just, I just onion. the idea of eating insects, I think it just kind of bugs me a little bit. <laughs> He'll be here all week, ladies and gentlemen. So in the physics, we're working on wrapping up optics. We are now going to be diving headlong into sound, starting uh, on the... 18th, which is going to be Friday. And then after that, we're going to go toward the end of the uh, quarter and then get into electrostatic. So we're moving pretty briskly through the quarter mm -hmm. and through the school year. It's already the end of October. And next thing you know, it, it'll be Thanksgiving because November has a lot of days out. So with that being said, I want to get into some club updates. Anime Club's got big news. Tell me all about it. <clears throat> well, should I say it or should you? Let's talk about what happened. Let's go there and then we'll We'll worry about everything else next week. So let's talk about what has happened with Anime Club this week. All right. So uh, we had a fundraiser at Chipotle. Congratulations. Well, Savior, congratulations. Because unfortunately, we did not meet the $300 minimum threshold of sales to get a check for the event. So we came up short. We only had $176.45 in total sales. That's well below the goal uh, of the fundraiser. A lot of people, you know, we appreciate people who came out, but it was not enough for us to actually get anything from it. So we're now reassessing and looking at what we can do for future fundraisers. We're, there have been talks of Chick-fil-A. There's other places we can do. We can do a, a potentially do like some kind of concessions for different sporting events. I know the band does concessions for football games, mm -hmm. but uh, if I remember correctly, the baseball teams don't really have a lot of concessions going on. But we're Correct. looking at different things to do to try to raise funds because as of right now, our uh, Funds are the same as they were before the fundraiser, which isn't good. So we're going to be yeah. looking to see what else we can do. Absolutely. To raise money. That's excellent that uh, you guys are still finding other ways to get to where you're going. That's just another lesson of stick to itiveness. Mm -hmm. Tell me about Game Club. What's been going on there? Oh, I stopped by yesterday. Had a blast. We're still chugging along. We still got Smash going on. We got some more Magic the Gathering going on, like you uh, the past couple weeks, and it's becoming kind of a big deal. And Mr. Kylie's been instrumental with that, hasn't oh my he? God, yes. I think we had like six people doing a free for all yesterday that went on majority of the actual club time. I've had some people still playing Warhammer. I've actually brought out a new game called Warcry. If people are interested, that's actually getting a little bit more into that, but that's going to be a whole other thing. Uh, I think right now the biggest thing is going to be figuring out how we can help support with the anime club because I know that a lot of us are crossing over and seeing if we can get more support for getting some fundraising going because I know that's really what we want to see is being able to get to these events. Mm -hmm. um, Otherwise, we're we're here. We're still meeting every Wednesday. I know that they're pushing very hard. I mean, to come on Fridays as well. I'd have to actually gauge interest, but we're keeping it going. We will keep you posted. Yeah. So, with all that being said, it's been uh, 
it has been great. We've got Mr. Budo coming in in a few. We're going to interview him. Well, we have the, the poll, too. Now. We do have oh, the yes. poll, and I forgot all about that. Yes. Mr. Moreland, you've been taking care of the poll and shepherding it along. What was our poll last week? The poll for last week was probably kind of dated. I'm not sure if the students really are interested in <laughs> 80s pop music, but it was, what's your favorite song from the album Sports by Huey Lewis in the News? We did have two votes, although I'm assuming they were probably adults uh, and not students. The Heart of Rock and Roll and Walking on a Thin Line both received one vote. So they tied for the best song. Unfortunately, Heart and Soul was not voted for. Did you vote for it, Mr. I did. That was my vote at the uh, the last podcast yes. we did. And if, if, if This Is It was also not voted on, which they're both good songs. I think. I like to think so. Oh, that was albums. a great album. Yes, but... Those are the two favorites from the two people. Well, I'm glad somebody voted. We will have a brand new poll for you this week. Mr. Moreland's working on that. That will be I up I think I might actually have the question, which is a much simpler yes or no question. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it is right up you guys' alley because it deals with science, but it also deals with maybe a little bit of a controversial question. Okay. Uh, I'm all ears. The new poll will be, do you think Pluto... Should be a planet. Again. The Disney character? No, the actual. Because oh. <laughs> if you guys, I'm sure you guys know. When I was a kid, we had nine planets. That's correct. One of them was Pluto. That's right. But then some jerk found other planets that were small and said, well, if Pluto's a planet, these should be planets too. There was like a billion of them. And like, okay, fine. It's not a planet anymore. It's a dwarf planet. So now Pluto is no longer classified as a planet. So the poll is going to be, do you think Pluto should be a planet? Yes or no. And that's it. <clears throat> now, I'm a little bit biased in this because, you know, when I was a kid, Pluto was a planet. But I'm sure there's a lot of people who say, well, it doesn't constitute a planet because of, you know, reasons. So that's going to be our poll for this week. Do you think Pluto should be a planet or not? And it's just basically yes or no. I think that's a great poll. What do you think, Mr. Lumpkin? Oh, I wouldn't want to spoil and bias the actual survey of someone who's been doing earth science and astronomy. That's fair. Uh, I will give you that. I do have a very strong opinion, but I'll keep it to myself. Understood. Hey, I made my argument. You guys can do it, too. I would find it much more interesting, personally. Although I would also imagine that my students would groan if we considered all of our dwarf planets, or at least some of our dwarf planets in our solar system to also be planets. But then that would be the opposite problem. Because <laughs> I believe at that point we'd have something like 13, 15, maybe more. And given, uh, yeah, it, it could get very, very funny very quickly. Unless we were to just consider, since it's always been a planet, to be a planet. I suppose there's, there's argument for either side. I... I haven't really quite come down on what it is. I know that Pluto has five moons. Yep. And Pluto affects the sun, makes it wobble. Yep. So by those two definitions, which are not very scientific, I would consider it to be a planet. However, the powers that be have designated a dwarf planet, so it is still a planet, just a very small one. Well, I, I heard that that Wobble song was actually inspired by Pluto. It was inspired by Pluto. But you might be talking about Mickey's Pluto. Not quite sure. Ah, true. So, 
with all that being said, anything else you want to point out before we get to our interview, Mr. Lumpkin? Oh, no, I think I'm pretty good for right now. I'm just glad that I can be with you guys here this week. You're always glad to have you, Mr. Lumpkin. Mr. Merle, anything you want to point out before we get to uh, Mr. Budo in the interview? Uh, just that if you are interested in anime, once again, as you guys know, our anime club meetings are on Mondays. And the more students that come out, the more support we can get. But maybe our next fundraiser will actually be, you know, a much more successful event and we can get some more money and we're always welcome to, to you know welcome new members and you know get new ideas and new you know suggestions for what we can do and of course game clubs on wednesdays again as, as uh you know you guys probably already know and once again that's also open to everybody mr hare when is uh step team we're working out our schedule uh we've had to um make some changes we were asked to uh, do a thriller type video for halloween mm -hmm. But the timing wasn't right, so we didn't have enough time to practice up for it. But we're working on everything, and we're going to go from there. So with all that being said, guys, we're going to get to this interview. And after the break, we'll have Mr. Budo and uh, our burning question. And welcome back, everybody. We are back at Practice What You Teach. We are going to have an interview with our special guest this week, and that's Mr. Budo. Welcome Hello. to the podcast. All right. Thanks for having me. We are glad to have you. You've been with us now. This is your second year, right? That is correct. And you do a bunch around campus. Uh, what do you What do you do outside of uh, when you're here? What do you do? What do you teach? What do you What do you coach, etc.? Um, so I teach economics and personal finance. I teach three classes of that. Um, pretty exciting. I actually I really like to teach it. Um, teaching kids valuable uh, skills throughout um, their life after high school is very rewarding. And then I coached basketball last year. Love it. It was awesome. Um, but I decided to go ahead and leave that alone. And then I picked up soccer. So currently I'm uh, coaching middle school soccer and high school soccer in the spring. Well, that's awesome. We always love to have our, our, our coaches on because that gives us a bigger insight into the athletic side of the school. Now, there are five questions we'd like to ask everybody. And the first one we start with is, where did you grow up? Um, so I'll start actually before that. I, I was born overseas um, in Albania. I moved to the States when I was uh, two years old. Uh, my parents actually won the lottery uh, for a visa. And we came over and I lived in New Jersey for a little bit. I lived in Philadelphia for a little bit. And then I grew up in Akron, Ohio. I lived there for about 21 years. And then last year, graduated and got a job here in Manassas Park. Well, we're glad to have you. Uh, you've been a great asset to the school. And uh, as someone who grew up in New Jersey, there's still some kinship there. <laughs> yeah. uh, where did you go to school? So I went to school in Ohio in Akron. Um, I went to Copley High School, if anyone's ever heard of it. Um, went there, it was um, predominantly African-American. Um, so when I moved here and I started teaching kids of Hispanic descent or Latino descent, it was very different, but it was very eye-opening and I'm glad I did it and, and I honestly really enjoyed it. Awesome, that's really great. Uh, we like to ask, what inspired you to go into education? This is, this is a difficult question, and a lot of people have asked me this, and and my mom will say the same thing. I, I always knew I wanted to be in education. I always knew I wanted to be a teacher. Um, I have two aunts in Europe who are professors, and then I have a cousin who's a high school teacher. Um, so I guess you could say it runs in the family, but um, I just always enjoy learning, and it's very um, interesting to me, especially even being, a, even being a teacher, I learn new stuff every single day. Um, and I just love it. I'm obsessed with it. I just I love to learn. and I love to spread that knowledge. Excellent. So this question is very open ended. Uh, I like to ask it to all the people who come on the podcast. Um, what is the role of a school? 
Um, so th this is a difficult question. I, I suppose the role of the role of a school is to kind of, in a way, develop um, a young child from adolescence to adulthood. Um, and it does that in a variety of ways. Um, I think definitely the social aspect is very, very, um, very, very good and prominent because, I mean, just imagine if you didn't go to school and then all of a sudden you just had to go to work and just work for the rest of your life, your social skills wouldn't be where they need to be at that point in your life. Um, obviously, beyond education, we definitely want to generally educate our students and our population to make sure that they're prepared for life after high school. But I believe the role of school has definitely changed as the years have gone by. Um, I think when I was growing up and a lot of us when we were growing up, school is more memorization. You have to memorize these facts. You have to know this. You have to do this. Now I feel like we're evolving. We're moving towards more, okay, this is what we need to do to prepare our students for the future. Um, we're, and we're going away from standardized testing. You know, Manessa Spark is we're going more focusing on what type of skills can we develop for these students so they can use these skills and apply them um, after high school. So I, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, it's really interesting you say that your, the, what your classes you teach are definitely in that vein. Yeah. You know, I know a lot of the kids come to me and they say, you know, I was in his class and I got a lot of out of it that I'm never going to use in school. Yeah. But when I get out of school, these are the skills I'm really going to need. Yeah. And it was, it was a blessing, you know, being able to teach personal finance because, you know, I'm teaching kids about doing their taxes. Um, loans, getting loans from banks, financing um, for a car, financing their homes, um, all these different types of things they will really use after high school. So they can't use the excuse, oh, I'm never going to use this because yes, you are. Absolutely. I know we build on each other. Uh, science teachers always try to go from one science to the other. I know language arts, they build on each other, but yours is actually something that could be used outside the school in a, in a constructive way. And I think that's awesome. Mm -hmm. The last question I think is the most important. It's one that really means a lot to me personally, but what are three books that have influenced you that you would recommend to the student body? Okay. I'll, I'll give you two series and a book. That's fine with okay. me. Okay. Uh, first series would be um, the Harry Potter series as um, it is a children's book, but it is phenomenal. I recommend anyone who's listening to this podcast to please read the books. Yes, you can watch the movies, but please read the books. Um, the second would be um, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. You can include The Hobbit in there as well. If it wasn't for Lord of the Rings, uh, nothing fantasy after that would even exist, like Star Wars or even Harry Potter. Um, so Lord of the Rings was kind of the catalyst to all fantasy. Um, and then lastly, I believe uh, the autobiography of Malcolm X, which I read maybe two, three years ago. Um, my friend suggested that I read the book and it was really one of the only books I've read at least two to three times from front to back. And it was just, it was spectacular. It was phenomenal. Um, I really recommend that one. Absolutely. Those are uh, several great books that you mentioned there. Normally when people come in, they, they say, oh, I have one or two. Some people have come in with five, but you've come in with an absolute 11 books, yeah. which is impressive. Yeah. Uh, I can say I read the Harry Potter series when they were new, uh -huh. uh, when they were coming out long before the movies. We actually didn't even have movies at the time, mm -hmm. uh, but we did. I did read the Harry Potter series and I have read the autobiography of Malcolm X. And those are two great recommendations. Lord of the Rings is a staple of uh, English literature. Yes. So anyone who is interested needs to absolutely grab those three books. Yes. And of course, The Hobbit is a good one. And I would also just to add the Cimmerillion, um, if you are that deep and interested in it, uh, getting into that lore is really interesting stuff. So I'd like to thank you for doing our interview with us. I, I, I really appreciate you coming. Now I wanna 
pivot directly to our burning question. Uh, this is a question that Mr. Moreland and I had started talking about a little bit and halfway through Mr. Moreland said, let's just put this in the podcast. So I wanted to bring it up to, to, the, to the three of us, uh, my two co-hosts and I, and then with Mr. Budo here, he said he would be interesting answering it as well. Uh, the question of the week, our burning question is, when should a revolution happen? Now, again, Mr. Lumpkin, Mr. Moreland and I were talking last week. We got really deep into it. Uh, we're not all on opposite sides, but we are at uh, right angles and obtuse angles on this. So I kind of wanted to jump right in and get with it. Uh, Mr. Lumpkin, when do you think a revolution should happen? Well, before I go any further, I'd like to remind everyone here that we're from a public school system and talking about revolution in our government might not be the best idea, but that's just context. Uh, as far as when a revolution should happen, I feel like that's such... I find it to be a very difficult question to approach head on. That's also why I kind of dismissed that one a little bit. It's interesting because you have to kind of go back and try to define exactly what you're owed as a citizen of a, well, whatever society you're revolting against, right? And I guess it depends on what sort of revolution scale we're talking about. If we're talking about revolting against a government that the people themselves have imposed and they believe that that government has now fault wrong them faulted them failed in some way i can see where there begins to be this discussion of revolution for change because the body of governance that and the contract that we all have signed in some way or fashion or form is no longer functioning but what becomes very tricky is when that function becomes very opinion and biased like in the world that we live in now where someone's functioning government is someone's dysfunctional government and then we can no longer seem to communicate back and forth on what our opinions are sides end up being and to the point being looking at current events where people call for a revolution based on whether or not someone's doing their job properly and it, 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 from an armchair perspective, right? That all being said, if I was to give a solid answer, when should a revolution happen? A revolution happen when the absence of an evolution, uh, the absence or not revolting, being compliant, being fine, handling that whatever body above you, when that becomes detrimental is not the word I'm looking for, uh, when that comes to harm the, peop the people, when there is a certain and definable damage either done to the community, the culture, or especially people's like actual livelihoods to their health. That is when I believe a revolution should happen. Although realizing that there's plenty of environmental backing for that one already. But anyway. <laughs> sure. I, I think that that's a great example. I think you really touched on a lot of different things there. I, I know, speaking of armchair uh, political scientists, mm. there are a lot of people who can point to one particular grievance and say, we should have a revolution over this, and they toss around the word flippantly. Mm -hmm. But I do think there is something to be said, of, like you said, if people's livelihoods are in danger, if people's well-being is in danger, at some point, something has got to give. And that was a really good point. I like that. Mr. Moreland, I, again, I know you were really interested in this. You and I had a great mm. talk about it last week. Uh, it would be odd for us to just rehab that conversation. Oh, yeah. But I would love to get your thoughts on this. When should a revolution occur? What should go on there? Well, I'm going to take the historical perspective of this uh, just to make it more mm, relative to what we're talking about as teachers. The American Revolution, uh, you know, it began at a time when I wouldn't say that things were terrible for the people in the, in the 
than colonies of England. But at the same time, they weren't happy with the system. Whereas if you look at situations like in the Soviet Union during the 80s and you look at the situation in North Korea now, those places, you know, under the requirements of Mr. Lumpkin would be ripe for revolution. And in the Soviet Union's case, it collapsed because of other reasons. It wasn't a revolution. Correct. Mm -hmm. And in North Korea's case, they're still subjugated by their government. And I'm sure that there's a lot of people in that country who are not happy. There's probably a lot of people in that country who are not safe. You know, you can say the same thing about China, right? Absolutely. But there's no revolution going on in those countries that you would think there would be considering, you know, the requirements Mr. Lumpkin said. But I think the real idea of when a revolution happens is not necessarily the comfort or even safety of a society. It's when the people who want to have the revolution in the cases, especially of the founding fathers and, and their push are willing to die for their cause are willing for the opportunity to, to do this with the idea that it might potentially fail. Mm. You may not actually be successful in your revolution. You may die for what you're trying to get. If the founding fathers had failed in the American revolution, not only would we be a British colony still, but they would be seen as traitors and they would have been executed. Mm -hmm. And they were prepared to face that potential result in the act of what they were trying to achieve. So I think that's the that should be the modus operandi. That should be what you have to be willing to do to have a revolution is to die for what you're trying to push for or for the potential that you could die. And if you believe in something that much, that should be the only requirement. And I think that's the reason why a lot of people that are, you know, armchair revolutionaries like you guys are talking about are just that because they may want this or they may want that or may not be happy about this or that, but they're not willing to put their lives on the line to back up what they're talking about. It's the big difference between the idealist mindset and the realist mindset, which I appreciate. Yeah. I, I think that defines us pretty well as individuals as well. And there was a, I remember there was a, a, a former Soviet uh, KGB guy, I saw a video, I don't remember what his name was, but he basically said that the reason why the Soviet Union was not as strong in its, you know, push for its ideas as it could be, the reason they failed in the Cold War is because they focused too much on logic and, you know, knowledge and not enough on beliefs. Hmm. Because he said two plus two equals four. He says, is it the truth? Yes. But will you fight for that? Will you die for that truth? No, you're not going to die for two plus two equals four. You know, it may be the truth, but you're not willing to put your life on the line for that because it's stupid. But you're willing to put your life on the line for something you believe in, like it's something you, you know, that you back up for like a religious belief or something like that. And that's why it's it's such a, a more powerful means to an end instead of just truth. So it's not enough for it to be, just be something that's true. It's got to be something you believe in, too, that you're willing to sacrifice yourself for. I think those are some really good points. I know we have, like you said, Mr. Mr. Lincoln, the idealist and the realist, and I always love having to see that play off of each other. I really do agree with you there, Mr. Moreland, that being willing to die will enhance your ability to carry out a revolution. Mm -hmm. I know that during the revolution, Benjamin Franklin said, we must all hang together or we certainly swing together. Mm -hmm. Absolutely saying that if we don't stick it, we're going to be hanged and then that's going to be the end of whatever we thought we were doing here. I, I would like to believe that there's more to it than just being willing to die. 
because there are people who are willing to die who will throw themselves into that. Mm -hmm. And that may or may not satisfy the revolution they're trying to accomplish, especially considering there may be, we could consider what's in Hong Kong a revolution. Mm -hmm. It may or may not be successful, Mm -hmm. but it is going on in China. So there are those who will put everything on the line for it. At least I would like to believe that there are those who will do that. Mr. Budo, I know you were very interested in this topic, and I, I wanted to, to get your take on this. What do you think? Um, so originally, when should a revolution happen? I'm thinking before a revolution happened, let's take some steps first. Let's not, let's, let's not jump into a revolution. Sure. Um, I think we should, and I'll take the historical perspective on this. We'll talk maybe about the civil rights movement. Um, before revolution occurs in the civil rights movement in that context, um, and they did, you should maybe do take steps, take um, sit-ins, have peaceful protests, um, maybe go door to door and educate people, um, take necessary steps before getting to a revolution. Now, of course, I think a revolution is necessary if you take those steps and you don't achieve any progress, nothing is changing, and people's humanity is in question. They're not being treated like human beings. If that's the case, then I believe a revolution should occur. But I don't want people to go ahead and automatically just jump to the revolution because they're angry one day or they had a bad day. I want them to take the necessary steps, take the peaceful route. If that doesn't occur, nothing happens in that um, in that attempt, then I believe if you really truly believe that you want to make a difference, then some type of revolution should happen. Um, but I believe you should take the necessary steps first. Mm-hmm. And there's the quote from uh, John F. Kennedy. He said, those who make peace or revolution impossible make violent revolution inevitable. That's mm-hmm. correct. So that's kind of going along with what Mr. Budo said. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Mr. Budo. I, I really do. I take the idea that exhaust all possibilities before revolution. If we take, as, as you guys do, the historical point, which is we only call them revolutions when they're successful. So that's kind of the deal when it's like, well, we have to exhaust everything because otherwise it's not really a revolution because, you know, those that don't succeed don't get called revolution. For me personally, I I don't know that idealist and realist is the right one. Uh, I don't know that historical is the right one. I certainly find them fascinating to look at. I do find that those all three of those as facets of what we can look to and say, hey, this is what's going on and we should do X, Y and Z. I find that the philosophical question is more important to me than the ideal or the real or even the historical. I find that when you challenge a man's philosophies or you challenge a society's philosophies, at some point, either those philosophies stand that challenge or they wither to that challenge. And when you feel that you are withering, if you can no longer be viable, then you must become destructive. I point. I pointed to Hong Kong. I, I see what's going on there. They are protesting what they feel is an injustice, and they are protesting what they think is right. And the response that they're being met with, even though they have been, from what I can tell, mostly peaceful, has not been a peaceful response. That's my subjective impersonation from what I'm getting in the news. I'm not in Hong Kong. I don't know. I don't know what they're saying. I don't speak the language. I can't say for certain that what the people of Hong Kong want is a peaceful revolution. What I can say is the response they're getting doesn't seem as peaceful as the one is what they're initiating. And at that point, that's when I begin to question, well, the philosophy of the people that are doing the oppressing, is it standing this challenge or is it withering to this challenge? 
I pulled up for our show notes and I'll put this in, uh, I put it up in our, an hour uh, script and our outline and I can put it in the show notes, uh, the politics, which is written by Aristotle. Aristotle was a Greek philosopher. He is kind of known as being the father of Western philosophy. And one of the quotes I wanna to read to you comes directly from politics. In the first place, we must assume as our starting point that in the many forms of government which have sprung up, there has always been an acknowledgement of justice and proportionate equality, although mankind fail attaining them as I have already explained. Democracy, for example, arises out of the notion that those who are equal in any respect are equal in all respects because men are equally free. They claim to be absolutely equal. And I think that that's what makes democracy so interesting. I grew up in a democracy. I believe strongly in democratic institutions. I believe strongly in democratic rule. However, there are other countries that don't believe in democracy. There are oligarchies, there's monarchies, there's communism, there's every government under the sun. And so they don't take that idea. But for me, the philosophy of if we are equal in any respect, then we are equal in all respects. I find that to be fascinating. And I find that to be the idea that Mr. Mullen wants to, that's what we'll defend. I think that defending that idea is important. And I think that if we're going to have these types of revolutions, they don't necessarily have to have bloodshed. There can be a bloodless revolution. Look at the Arab Spring. There was many of those who said, we won't take this anymore. Yes, they were attacked, but they achieved their ends without causing the death of another. Because it might also be that if you're willing to, to die, there's also someone who's willing to take you there. And I would not want that for any of us. I wouldn't want anyone to be killed if they don't have to be killed. I don't want anyone to kill if they did have to be killed. I don't want anyone to die at all. So that's just my take on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd love, again, I love the philosophy of it. I love the idea of it. I love making sure that, you know, if a revolution is going to happen, you know, it has to be made happen. And you have to be mindful. It will not be televised. Well, and also to add, just because you want to have a revolution doesn't mean the ideas of the revolutionaries are the right ones. Absolutely. So You're absolutely right. Too. You are absolutely right. And, and I the idea is if somebody is trying to have a revolution for an idea that is not good or not, you know, just the people who are good and just need to be willing to defend, you know, whatever the establishment would be Yes, sir. against the people who are wanting to overthrow that for their own either, you know, misguided or selfish desires, depending on whatever the, the cause they have. is. I agree with you completely. An example of that would be, say, the Civil War, mm-hmm. which is would be considered a revolution had it succeeded. In its failure, it got labeled as just a civil war where, like you said, they stood up for what they believed in and it did not stand the test of scrutiny. Mm-hmm. Just to uh, chime in on the whole uh, Hong Kong-China situation, um, I was actually in China over the summer, and actually a lot of people in China um, really do not like people in Hong Kong. So tensions were actually building up even before this whole thing happened. Um, And so around where Hong Kong is, it's actually very violent. Although the farther you get away from Hong Kong, um, it's actually very peaceful. Yes, if you do ask people, they do not like people from Hong Kong and their ideals and their beliefs. Um, However, the worst thing about it is um, my friend actually lives in Nanjing right now and he actually traveled to Australia and then he came back. The only thing that's being interrupted from people that are far away from Hong Kong and northern parts of China is um, their flights are being delayed. Um, Actually, my friend's flight was delayed for almost a week because um, there's just no flights coming in and out of China at that time. So I just want to kind of shed a little light on that. Absolutely. And I appreciate that insight. Again, I, I can't speak to both sides on this. I think it's fair to look at both sides on this, 
but I don't have all that information. And of course, you you went there, so you obviously yeah. have insight that I just don't have. Yeah. I mean, your friend, I believe you told me he's a teacher, correct? Yes, yes. So he's got a he's got his finger on the pulse, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the right answer is. I know what I believe, and I know that what I think my country should believe. But of course, that is up to the individual to make their determination. And so with all of that, I'd like to thank you all for listening to another great episode. Is there anything you guys want to bring attention to, Mr. Mr. Lumpkin? One last quick note. Oh, marriage is nice. You love it? Congratulations <laughs> again. I went to Mr. Lumpkin's wedding this past Saturday. We had a ball. It was out in uh, Prince William uh, Park, correct? Mm-hmm. I, I have to be there. I loved everything about it. My son ran crazy out there. I, I, I think he met your mother. So. She's a bus driver. Mm-hmm. Oh man, he absolutely loved hanging out with her. She picked him up, and he was oh man, he was all he loved hanging out with your mom. I'm just glad you guys could have fun there. I'm glad I'm glad you guys ended up coming, even though I it was a little late, but <laughs> we started early. It's fine. And also, it was hard to, to find. <laughs> I was glad to be there, Mr. Moreland and I. We did a little West Side Story on our way over to talk oh, to yeah. Mr. Lumpkin. Mm-hmm. We embarrassed him and said, "This is what happens when you invite your friends." <laughs> Mr. Moreland, anything you want to point out to our audience? Well, this weekend is the last weekend you will have the opportunity to see Judgment at Nuremberg. Oh, yeah. Excited. Uh, produced by Prince William Little Theater. Yes, sir. At the Hilton Center for Performing Arts. Uh, it's a, you know, I think it's George Mason campus. Mm-hmm. I think so, yeah. Yep. Uh, so if you have a chance to come see it, we would really appreciate it. It's a great play. It, it does not get put on very often for, you know, I don't know why, but it's a very important play, very specific content about, you know, the aftermath of World War II. And everybody's doing a great job in the play, and uh, we would love to see you guys there. So. Absolutely, there. That's a really interesting time frame, right in the uh, the end of World War II, with obviously uh, the Nuremberg trials, the creation of Israel. There, there's a lot of interesting things that have reverberations today. One thing I want to point out is one of the lawyers that got the convictions of the Nazi uh, party or the people who were participatory in the Holocaust. He was in his twenties. He was a very young man. He was a very fresh lawyer who had just gotten his. Uh, just gotten barred and he went into and and he did what he had to he's a very impressive young man uh mr budo anything you want to point out um let's see travel for anyone who's listening to this podcast i highly recommend you guys travel wherever you want to go whether it be in the united states outside of the united states anywhere um you just learn so many different things you meet so many uh great people um, I would definitely recommend traveling. One of the best things I've ever done, and I'm still going to continue to do. Absolutely. I think everyone should, at a minimum, leave their hometown and leave their home state. Absolutely. I also think that everyone should get a passport, but of course, that's not always feasible. Mm-hmm. So I, one last thing I want to always point out, uh, with the end of the uh, quarter coming up soon, now's the last opportunity for this quarter to bring your grade up. So if you've got anything you wanted to go, go grab your teachers and tell them, hey, where am I sitting at? Do I need to turn anything in? Is there anything I need to give you? That way you can get all of your grades in before the end of the quarter, which is coming up rapidly. So we're brushing up against that. With that, I'd like to thank you all for listening to our podcast, Practice What You Teach, a weekly teacher podcast. You can follow us on Twitter. We are at PWUT Podcast or P What? P What Podcast. If you want to email us, we have all types of information. We're looking for new things. We will have a new poll on the Twitter. So look out for that. And as always, thank you for listening. Good night and good luck.